Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as we consider the prayer we just sang together, this prayer that God would speak to us, it's, it's, it's appropriate. Because in, in 1 and 2 Timothy, the theme, the, the glue that holds these two letters to Timothy together is the instruction from Paul that Timothy hold fast to sound words, the words from God. And he uses different terminology, sound words, sound doctrine, the testimony that you've heard. He uses euphemisms at times, but the ultimate thing that Paul is trying to get across to his son in the faith is the need for the church to be grounded in the Word of God. And this is important because there are those who want to subvert the Word of God within the church. And this comes out right in the introduction. We looked at this a little bit last week. We're going to see it again today as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. There is what uh, some of your Bibles might list out as a warning against false teachers. Because those sound words, that sound doctrine, that, that teaching of Christ is under attack, not only in the first century in Ephesus, but even in our own day. So this is an an incredibly important book for us to study as a church. So let's read the text. If you would just follow along as I read through these verses, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll study it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it any further? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the gathering of Your people where we can read Your Word and sing Your Word and hear Your Word and sit under the teaching of Your Word. And I pray that our true heart's prayer is that we want you to speak to us, that we want you to renew our minds, that we want you to just affect our hearts and lives in such a way that you can line us up with your revealed truth, accomplish your purpose today through the gathering of your people and the preaching of your word. And I especially want to pray for those among us who don't know you. They are still strangers to your covenants and your promises. They, they have not yet come to see their need of Christ and understand just how gracious and glorious He is. And so, Father, I pray that the gospel would be heard and that it would bear fruit today for your glory and for our joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the greatest thinkers throughout history have pointed out that the more they learn 
the more they realize how little they actually knew to begin with. Have you ever experienced this? As we, we, we think we know what's going on, and then we experience a little more, we learn a little more, someone takes us aside and points things out, and we say, oh, well, I didn't know what I didn't know. We, we say that a lot of, of young people, inexperienced individuals. As we study and as we think and as we experience and as we observe, we tend to realize that there were gaps in our knowledge. And a lot of us start out with confidence. We think we, we know what we're talking about. We think we have a, a really good understanding of all things that we have not experienced or studied yet. But once we open the box to that, we realize, oh, I didn't know that was there. These things had been hidden from us. But what happens when someone lacks this awareness? What if someone is so afflicted by ignorance that they are incapable of knowing that they're dead wrong about something? Well, as is common, study that was done on this. A few Cornell University professors did a study. That the study, well, they, they titled this the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this occurs when our incompetence prevents us from seeing our incompetence. During their research, they found that there is an alarming number of people who come off as know-it-alls, but they actually don't know what in the world they're talking about. Arrogance and this general lack of self-awareness are two key factors in this. And the people that are most afflicted by this are those who are simply unable to detect their incompetence as well as being unable to recognize the competence of other people. And you're all kind of being quiet right now because you're thinking about people in your life. And if you're not thinking about people in your life, this may be about you. But there is good news here. There is good news. The good news is that the more we learn, the more this effect is diluted in us. In other words, we can grow, but it will require us to be open to learn, to become more informed, as well as we need to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We need to have humility. Growth in this area requires humility and more education. And I think we can see in this text that there are a few folks in Timothy's church that need to grow in this area. They don't know what they don't know. They need to be shown the things that they don't understand as well as they think they do. And not only is this text a warning that there are false teachers in the church, but this text also shows us that Timothy is the one that is called on to confront those false teachers. And so here's the first point as we look through this text. The first point is this. Leaders are called to take action. Leaders are called to take action. Look back at verse 3. Paul tells Timothy as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now we don't know all of the backstory here, but we do know this. Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, we had this conversation at some point. And, and it may have been in Acts chapter 20 as Paul was leaving Ephesus going on that Macedonian call. You might remember that from Acts chapter 20. We don't know when this conversation occurred, but, but we do know that it occurred. And Paul is writing to Timothy saying, hey, you remember that thing we talked about? Yeah, you still have that responsibility. Paul is telling Timothy, he is urging Timothy, you are the leader that God has appointed to take action in this particular instance. 
So like a commander on the battlefield giving instruction, Paul makes clear, Timothy, you have a mission to complete. And this mission involves confronting certain people about their teaching. Paul tells Timothy that you are to charge these people. And that word, charge them, it's the idea of confronting them, giving instruction to them, and doing so with authority. And it may be that Paul is taking his apostolic authority, which we talked about last week, and he's saying, you're operating underneath that apostolic authority, so go under that authority and do what you've been called to do. Charge these men, confront these men over what they are teaching. That's not the only task of leadership, but it is a task of leadership. Elders have a responsibility, and part of that responsibility is doing hard things, initiating difficult conversations, and we do that in such a way that our desire is to win a brother or sister over to the truth. But we are, in fact, called to do those hard things, to confront those things when we see them. That's part of the shepherd's role. Timothy's mission here is clear. Confrontation coupled with instruction. And Paul has certain people in mind. He just uses that phrase, certain people. We don't know who they are, but Timothy knows who they are. We don't know every detail of the circumstance, but Timothy knows the problem. And the problem is outlined for us in this way, that these individuals were teaching doctrines or beliefs that were not consistent with gospel truth. They were contrary to to the standard of teaching handed down by Jesus. And we'll see this kind of language throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We we can't exactly put a name on it, but we can see the areas where their doctrine was at variance with God's Word. And we're going to study those things along the way. But Paul mentions here that at the root of this is uh, this fixation on myths and genealogies. Did you see that in the text? That's what they're doing. They're devoting themselves in verse 4 to myths and endless genealogies. And we're familiar with those words, right? Myths. We know what myths are. Myths are those human fables that claim to give secret knowledge about the gods. They're human stories, not divine revelations. And and we also know Ephesus was a Greek city-state, so, or a Roman city-state. And the Greeks and Romans had entire religious systems uh, that focused in on false gods. And we call those things myths. These were made-up stories to help the people make sense of reality. And so there's, there's no resemblance to divine truth, but there is some body of instruction that's being proposed. And Paul says that's what they're doing. They're they're engaging in myths. They're focusing in on myths. But not only that, but also genealogies. I don't know if you've ever done a a family history. I don't know if you've ever focused much on genealogies. The Jews were really uh, focused on genealogies. The genealogies meant a lot to them because if you were part of a particular family line, then you had a certain level of authority within the Jewish community. Even a certain responsibility. If you were uh, of the lineage of Levi, you, you might have you know, prophetic powers, right? And so there's this syncretism taking place here where there's a little bit of Christian doctrine mixed in with some of that Roman mythology, mixed in with some Jewish genealogies, and all of these things are coming together to produce a body of doctrine that was inconsistent with the gospel and inconsistent with the teaching of Christ. That's what's happening here. Now, I don't know where you stand 
on false doctrine. Maybe you've not thought deeply about this. Maybe you've not been confronted much about this. And maybe you would say, you know, why is, why is it such a big deal for us to correct one another when it comes to doctrine? I mean, no one has their doctrine 100% correct, right? I mean, are we all willing to admit that? No one knows all things. No one understands all things. No one has a 100% accuracy in the things that we believe and teach. So why can't we just let these differences go? Well, there is a sense with, when we look at theology, when we look at doctrine, there are different degrees of importance with those doctrines. There are some doctrines that we would call essentials. These are the, the fundamental doctrines of the faith. That if you get these wrong, if you misunderstand the role of Scripture, if you misunderstand the means of salvation, if you don't know the person and work of God, these are essential doctrines. And when we start talking about the essential doctrines, there must be absolute unity on these things. Now, there are some non-essential doctrines, things that we could have differences of opinion on. And we might have a great discussion about those things, but that doesn't necessarily bring you into the realm of false teaching. But as we continue to study, we're going to see that the things that are being addressed in this letter, these are things that touch on essential doctrines, the nature of God, the nature of the gospel, and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. In fact, we see in verse 4 and verses 6 and 7 that there are five ways that this particular false doctrine leads God's people astray. So the first thing we saw is that Timothy is being charged as a leader to take action. The second thing I want you to see are five ways that false doctrine leads God's people astray. And the first one is this. False doctrine or false teaching promotes speculation rather than faithfulness to God's Word. All five of these are going to come straight from this text. False teaching promotes speculation rather than faithfulness to God's Word. We see that right there in verse 4. These people were fixated on promoting speculations rather than the stewardship, the good order, or the good doctrine from God that is by faith. False teaching is dangerous, is what Paul is telling us. If it is left unchecked, it is dangerous. It results in leading God's people astray by focusing our minds on useless human opinions. That's what speculations is talking about. These things are fruitless, they are useless, and they are human opinions rather than the revealed truth of God. And that might be a challenge to you because you have a fairly high opinion of your opinions. And Paul is saying these things don't produce the godliness that the truth is intending to produce. You see, as believers, we are called to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Creator. And, and the reason we are is because it's the truth of God that is to set us free, Christ tells us. Not human ideas. Like the passage we read in the scripture reading, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for, for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that men and women of Christ can be equipped for the good work God has called us to do. And there's so much contained in that phrase. The, the scriptures are the breathed out word of God and they are profitable for us to help us to grow and to help us be prepared to live out a faithful Christian morality. And when you subvert the Word of God for human speculation, all areas of that are being affected. And that's what Paul is getting at. 
When we abandon God's word in the promotion of human speculations, we are rejecting the very thing that God has given to us and preserved for us so that we can grow in our faith, and that is the word of God. False teaching inhibits our growth. It leads us away from faithfulness to God. And that's what Paul is addressing here. That's what Timothy is addressing. A false teaching that rejects God's word in favor of human speculation. Now I could kind of tease this out a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there and keep going uh, because we're going to see this play out as we continue to study the book. The second way that false teaching leads God's people astray is that it directs us, it directs us away from the main aim that we have as Christians. The main aim that we have as Christians. Paul says in verse 5 that the, the aim of our charge is love, right? The aim of our charge is love. Now we do know this. Well, maybe we know this if you know your catechism. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So this is the reason why we were created. But as Christians, we've been called into community together, and in that, there is an aim, there is a goal, there is a purpose. Paul says that goal and purpose, the focal point of Christian ministry, is love, to produce love within the body. And it's a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We'll talk about what those are in a few minutes, but here's the point. False teaching causes us to wander away from this aim It causes us to wander away from the aim of love produced by these things. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? Well, let me give you some examples. When false teaching creeps in, it sets a new trajectory for our spiritual life, one that is contrary to God's trajectory. Here's some modern examples of false teaching and how they skew the aim of the Christian life. Here's a quote from Kenneth Copeland. You may or may not know that name. He says this, You must realize that it is God's will for you to prosper. This is available to you. And frankly, it would be stupid of you not to partake of it. Close quote. Do you see the shift? The shift is not love, it's prosperity. Here's another one. This is from Joel Osteen. When you're in difficult times, it's good to remind God what you've done. You should pray to God in this way. God, I've kept my family in church. God, I've gone the extra mile to help others. I've given, I've served, I've been faithful. Joel Osteen says, in your time of need, you should call in all of these seeds that you have sown. In other words, we should basically say, God, I've done all these things for you. You've got to do this for me. And he's talking in line of prosperity. Creflo Dollar, I did not make that name up. When we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. We have that authority? Really? It is key, he says, to getting results as a Christian. We must not allow, this is still a quote, we must not allow religion nor tradition to blind us to the truth of what prayer really is. Holding God accountable to give us what we deserve. One more, one more. And I had a lot more. I had to take some out. Joyce Meyer, if you stay in your faith, she says, you're going to get paid. Okay, so hopefully you can see the point I'm making here. 
I'm not just trying to call out names for the sake of calling out names, although I do want to name these people so you can avoid them. What they're doing is they're saying the, the goal of the Christian life is health, wealth, and prosperity. And if you don't have those things, you're doing it wrong. And the Scriptures say, no, that's not the goal. That's not the aim of Christian ministry. They teach that the aim of Christian ministry is to get wealthy. And the only people getting wealthy off of their ministry is them. They shift the focus of people's hearts away from faithfulness, away from godliness, away from being conformed to the image of Christ, and onto the worldly pursuit of prosperity or something else. And that's where false teaching takes us. It makes something other than the true main thing the main thing. And it focuses our energy and our attention on that. But this is by no means the only false teaching being preached today. The most prominent heresies in our day are those that are being promoted in the pulpits of churches by leaders who have successfully presented their alternative view of Christianity or their alternative view of morality to the ready applause of unsuspecting people. Rather than holding fast to the Word of God and preaching it with boldness and faithfulness, they've twisted things to their own ends. And this is big business, by the way. Heresy is big business, not only on TBN, but in, in publishing houses. It is big business because challenging tradition, Christian morality sells. And so you, you can be bombarded with false teaching if you're not careful, if you don't know what to look for, if you don't know how to discern truth from error. And listen, you cannot take for granted that just because a person is popular and they have a spiritual title that they're actually teaching biblical truth. We cannot take for granted that a best-selling author in the religion and spirituality section is actually representing biblical Christianity. You need to know the truth. We need to know the truth for ourselves and so that we can, we can affirm when it is being taught accurately and also reject when it's being taught improperly. We need to be more equipped in the Word of God because false teaching seeks to redefine the aim of the Christian life. Number three, false teaching leads to vain discussion. That's the word that Paul uses here, or at least that's the word that uh, the ESV has. It could be translated as fruitless talk. It produces a, a never-ending stream of discussion that fails to yield the fruits of the Spirit. It may make for interesting discussion. We may really like to talk about these things, but it fails to produce growth and maturity in Christ. Not only in those who hear, but also in those who preach and teach those things. Jesus said this to the disciples in Matthew 7. He said, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Right? We know that phrase. And we need to beware of them because they don't come acknowledging the fact that they're about to corrupt doctrine, right? They come to us in a sinister way. They, they appear to be a sheep, but they're actually a wolf. So they're in the church. That's what he's telling us here. They're difficult to spot, but he does go on and say this, you will recognize them by their fruits. So you're not going to necessarily see that, what's going on from the outside, but if you pay attention, if you watch carefully, you will eventually see what's going on. You will see the true intent of their lives because their lives do not reflect the fruits of the Spirit that we're called to live in and walk in. 
So in a sense, it's the conduct of false teachers we're supposed to pay attention to. Not just their teaching, but also their conduct. John MacArthur writes on this particular verse, he says, False prophets can disguise and hide their bad fruit for a while with church trappings and biblical knowledge and evangelical vocabulary. They can cover it by belonging to Christian organizations or associating with Christian leaders or by talking of divine things. But sooner or later, what is in the heart will emerge and corrupt theology will result in a corrupt life. How many times have we heard stories of evangelical leaders who've been church planters and they've lived for 20, 25 years in this large ministry and then we realize in this huge scandal that for the last 10 to 15 years they've been living inappropriately. Caught in a scandal with a secretary or someone else. Happens all the time. Sadly. True Christians... We're called to pursue the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. This is what we're called to pursue. And we don't embody those things perfectly, right? Can we acknowledge that? Perfection comes on the other side of Christ's return. So we're going to strive after godliness and we're going to pursue to be conformed to the image of Christ and we're going to seek these fruits in our lives. We're not going to embody them perfectly, but we're going to grow in them over time. But counterfeit Christians are marked by different types of fruits like arrogance, self-importance, selfish ambition, impatience, and greed. These are just the words that are used throughout the New Testament in describing false teachers. They abuse their authority and they wound true sheep. Some of you have experienced this. They obtain a platform and they do everything they can to maintain that platform. Even if that means running over other people, there is no consistent Christ-like humility in them, but instead a desire to grow and to lord their authority over others. But Jesus tells us we will see their fruit. It will expose itself over time. He may prey upon women and children. In Jude 4, it says that certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, those among, among these false teachers are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. These kind of individuals, both men and women, they get entrenched in the church, they hide behind their gifts, and often they cause other people to overlook their sin out of a misplaced loyalty. They will create leadership structures that insulate them from criticism. We, we, we know this. They, they operate with unchecked control, and yet we were told to beware of them. So we need to change some of those practices and policies. We need to be in some regards not only knowledgeable about doctrine so that we can discern truth from error, but also be able to spot the fake when they come. And part of how we do that is through their conduct. We can spot the fake by their influence. False teaching doesn't always show up, all, uh, by the way, in, in a person. Sometimes you'll read about it. Sometimes you'll listen to it on a podcast. Sometimes you'll watch it on TV, on TBN. It's everywhere. It's all around us. It, and what happens is it, it'll move your heart in some way. It's not, 
exactly the thing you normally hear, but it just sounds good. You can't put a verse on it, but it just sounds good. It sounds right. It appeals to your own human intuitions, but there's something different about it. It, it smooths out the rough edges of Jesus' teaching, and ultimately what it's doing is it's, it's taking the, the hard truths of the gospel and it's moving them to the side and it's putting something else in its place. We see this all the time. False teachers have much to say, but their words do not produce the fruits of the Spirit. Number four. False teaching promotes human ignorance instead of godly wisdom. This is right here in the text as well. The men that Paul had in mind in the church at Ephesus were seeking to be teachers of the law, but they really didn't understand the law. They didn't understand the subject. They were proclaiming their own unfounded opinions and they were promoting their human ignorance rather than relying on the wisdom of God revealed in Scripture. And, and Paul talks about them in, later in chapter 6 by saying this. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine or a contrary doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there's a lot there. We'll get to it in a couple of months. But here's the point that he's making. These individuals have fixated on their own human wisdom. They've denied godly wisdom and there is the sinister fruit that comes out of that. A lot of times when the Bible talks about false teachers, it talks about their heart motivations, what's behind them, their selfish ambition, their desire for personal gain. Those things are commonly identified. They like the attention that their words garner from others. They like the spotlight. They like the feeling of importance. They like to be the the ones in the corner that have a huddle of people around them, and they're saying, well, let me tell you why he was wrong on this. This is a very common practice. This false teaching is elevating man's words over God's words, and then Lastly, fifthly, false teaching leads to the shipwreck or the ruin of one's faith. Look down in verse 19. Paul finally, he gives, he gives us some names here in verse 19. He says uh, that, well, it, verse 19 starts off with holding faith in a good conscience. He's talking about Timothy's charge. But then he says, by rejecting this faith in a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In other words, they have ruined their own faith, and among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So even though in verses 3 through 7 he uses the phrase certain people, back here or down here in verse 19 and 20, he actually names a couple of guys. And what we believe is going on there is that there's, there's more than just Hymenaeus and Alexander in the church at Ephesus. But these are two prime examples of what can happen to someone if they go down this path of embracing false teaching and and human intuitions, right? These individuals shipwrecked their faith. In other words, they completely walked away from Christ. They abandoned the truth. And that's what's really at stake here. These individuals categorically destroyed their faith and the salvation it provides because they abandoned the truth of the gospel. So maybe you would think, well, yeah, there's, there's plenty of things we can talk about, and we don't need to correct every false doctrine, but yeah, there are some, there are many that we need to address. And it's for this reason, the real cost of false doctrine is that it replaces the truth of Christ with a lie. It presents a false hope, and false hopes lead to real judgment. 
Man's wisdom has a ceiling. It has limits. It can elevate human beings only so far, but it falls short of God's truth. God's truth, His wisdom, is powerful beyond anything we might imagine. Because it can turn sinners into sons. In 1 Corinthians 1, you know this phrase. In verse 18, Paul writes this, The word of the cross... The word of the gospel, the word of Christ, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, discerning of the, uh, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, you're not going to achieve God's understanding of His plan for the world by by your own intuition. God's going to have to reveal that to you. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, therefore it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The true cost of false teaching is that it corrupts the gospel of Jesus. It offers the empty promise of fulfillment found in human wisdom. But salvation comes from God's wisdom. Salvation from sin comes when we turn our hearts away from human solutions to embrace Jesus Christ alone as the wisdom and power of God. So those are five ways that false teaching leads God's people astray. And it leads us astray from what is the true aim of gospel ministry. And that's what we're going to talk about last. The aim of our ministry. The aim of our charge is love. And that comes right back to verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that word aim there, it just means our goal. What is our purpose? What are we striving after? The, the striving of our ministry is to produce Love. That is the genuine fruit that Christ bears in the hearts of his people. And let me give you like a little logical connection here. Faithful ministry in the word of God unifies the people of God because we're all submitting to the same teaching, the same doctrine, the same word. And so faithful ministry from the word of God unifies God's people because it focuses our minds on the unaltered truth of God And this increases our love for Christ and for one another because we're all being tuned to the same truth. And it produces this unity. And Paul talks about this unity in other books. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the, the same understanding, having the same love and being of full accord and do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. When we are united in truth and united in purpose and united in love, we're not going rogue in our own direction seeking to gain our own favor. We're seeking to be faithful to Christ. Let each of you not look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. See, when we are unified in our doctrine and overflowing with love for one another, that's when the goal of the Christian life comes into focus. False teaching threatens this unity. It threatens this love. False teaching undermines this unity and this love. It undercuts the community which the gospel intends to create. 
Do you remember what Jesus said were the two greatest commandments? To love God and love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to love one another. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're commanded to do. And in in fact, when we're commanded to love, we're being commanded to imitate our Father. John tells us in 1 John that God is love. And we're called to love one another. We're being called to be like our Heavenly Father. The gospel of God's grace is what fuels this love in us. This love flows out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the only way to have a pure heart, according to Scripture, is to have a new heart. And that's what God provides when we're born again in the gospel. When we hear the gospel preached and the Spirit of God moves in our hearts to receive Christ by faith, that pure heart is what is granted to us. He takes out our heart of stone and he gives to us a heart of flesh. The gospel of God's grace is what brings this about, not the ideas of sinful men. And a good conscience is something that we're all striving after. A good conscience is one that isn't weighed down by sin and the guilt of human sin. A good conscience is a gift from God. The conscience is that internal sense of right and wrong. It doesn't rely on human efforts because it's been tuned by the gospel to understand that on our own we're not good, but in Christ we are sufficient for everything that is necessary has been sufficiently provided so that we have right standing with God. And now our conscience is being tuned by the word of God so that we can know what is right and wrong and we can walk in the truth. That's what it means to have a clear conscience as a Christian. And then he goes on and he says, not only that, but a sincere faith. And that word sincere is interesting. It means without hypocrisy in the Greek. Without hypocrisy, a faith that is without hypocrisy, a faith that is genuine and sincere. Not a mask that we put on, but is a genuine understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. And we are walking in that. See, as Christians, we know a few things. We know that we're not good on our own. We know that we can't earn God's love. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that we can, by, by doing X, Y, and Z, earn our way to God. The gospel tells us that God in His love, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us, to cover and atone for our sins. And it's by faith in this that we have a, a pure heart and a sincere faith and a good conscience. And that's what we're striving after. And when we, conv- when we obscure the truth of the gospel for the sake of false teaching, we lose all of these things. And this is what we're after, a sincere faith that looks to and trusts in Christ. So as we continue to study this book, we're going to see all these different areas where false teaching had crept in. But we need to keep this central, this understanding of what is the foundation of our faith. Now, I know this. I'm going to close with this idea. I know that in this room, there's a lot of human wisdom and experience, right? There's a lot of people who've come to that conclusion that there was a time when you didn't know what you didn't know, but now you've grown, you've learned, you understand, you come to situations with humility. But there's a lot of wisdom in this room. There's a lot of intelligence in this room. There's a wealth of knowledge in this room. But the test of true wisdom and knowledge is whether or not our beliefs are consistent with God's Word. In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And here's the real test of wisdom and knowledge. Do we recognize the voice 
of our Savior? Have we learned to recognize the voice of Jesus over the voice of false teachers? Have we, have we studied the Word of God to the degree that we can spot when something is off? We need to know what Jesus says in His Word. We need to be able to recognize when a teacher is off-key. Our hearts and our minds and our lives have to stay tuned to Christ, and this means that we need His Word daily. And so, brothers and sisters, are you reading and studying and meditating on and memorizing the Word of God? For every look that you give to human wisdom, you need to make multiple glances back to the Word of God to check whether those things are true. As we have a, a plethora of voices around us, and we can put our little earbuds in, and we can listen to what man has to say all day, and we can turn on our television and get man's opinion of what's going on in the world and what the real problems are and what the, what the solutions might be. But do we know the Word of God? And can we spot it when it's off, when individuals are teaching something that is inconsistent with it? That's what Paul is, being, is charging Timothy to do, and by extension, us as well. So let me pray for us that we can recommit ourselves to the truth of God's Word and be ready and be aware. Father, thank you for your Word. Help us as men and women of faith. Help us as Christians to root our thinking and our understanding and our lives in your Word so that we can not necessarily be free from the false teaching that comes, but be able and willing to spot it and call it out like Timothy was. I pray that you would help us to see the sincerity with which we should apply this knowledge today to our lives because there's so many different ways that the world and the flesh and the devil are trying to steal our hearts away from your truth. But I pray, Father, that you would guard us against the influence of these teachers, that you would cause us to remain true to the word. And we do pray that you would give us that good conscience, that pure heart, and that sincere faith that comes through knowing Christ and embracing his truth. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.